Welcome to This Week in Ringer Culture. I am Liz Kelly bringing you the highlights from the Ringer Podcast Network. 2017 is officially coming to a close, and as part of our year in review package, we have new articles up on the site, such as best TV show episodes, best performances, best action movies, and so much more on TheRinger.com. First clip this week is actually a preview of some of the best of lists we've been creating. We have Andy Greenwell, Chris Ryan, and special guest Sam Esmail talking about their top TV shows of 2017 here on The Watch. You want, you want to do your Ozark bit, or does everyone know? I think, I've, I mean, I've screamed and shouted about this show a lot. I thought it was actually sneakily very, very subversive in terms of how we think about protagonists and and the heroes of shows in a way that I haven't really been confronted with. I thought that the slow boil of Walter White going from, mm-hmm. what, it, what was the Mr. Chips to Scarface yep. or whatever it was the tagline for that, that he starts out essentially as Scarface's accountant and you're like right there in that moral moment with him. Um, and the amount of stuff that they did in terms of like, most shows should spend two episodes talking about something like this. Most shows should be building up to this moment for half a season. We're going to do this in the first 30 minutes and it, we're going to be like incredibly candid with each other as terms, in terms of characters. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't want to like belabor Ozark. I think we've been talking about it a lot, but like, I'm not, I, I don't ironically like the show. Like I actually thought it was just excellent. And it also was, it felt different than other shows. I think there's a little bit of a sameness to the, to the look of some shows and a lot of it had to do with the setting, but I just really was like never sure where this show was going. And I thought that it was, it was gripping. I will say that the, the, I think it's episode seven kaleidoscope, one of my favorite episodes of TV of the year. Awesome. Just well-made. We have two well shows to talk about yeah, left. Both. I think we all agree we're excellent. Um, oh, and so we're, it's basically the same two shows well, for all of us. Yeah, right? my, no, I mean, uh, Maybe the order is different. My, oh. my, my, my top two are The Young Pope at two. Oh, that's right. We but talked about your did number you, two did, is, did you not? My number two is Mindhunter, which my is... My number one is Mindhunter. My number two is Twin Peaks. And you you don't have Mindhunter? Oh, it was six. We just moved oh, past. Yo, I, moved I love Mindhunter. Okay. I love um, it. Well, I mean, Mindhunter is, I mean, it's its kind of like a kind of pointless for me to talk about because I'm such a F- Fincher fanboy, but I, he's, you know, it's, 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 it's well made in a, in a, in the classic seventies film crime noir sense, but it's also just, it's very present, very new. It still feels very thrilling. And Jonathan Groff yeah, delivers. Can you talk about that performance as a director? I mean, it's. Well, I mean, I, you know, because we had him on the podcast before I saw the last three episodes, which is which the last three episodes of Mindhunter go masterpiece, masterpiece, masterpiece. And his performance in them is one of the great reasons why, including the all time like Zeppelin drop of any and like, all time televised panic greatest attack. use of Zeppelin in any piece of pop culture. I the, think the, the weird. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing about Groff is the 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 thing he plays, the subtext he plays yes. is that he's like one of these guys mm-hmm. And he doesn't play that at all. Mm-hmm. He plays the exact, he mm-hmm. plays this nerdy, vulnerable, almost the exact opposite of these guys. And yet I sense, oh no, that's my assistant calling, by the way. <laughs> um, I sense, oh no, that uh, there is something a little off about Groff, but he doesn't, he hides it in a way that a person like that would that hide. That character it. starts out and he has the, oh, I want to move up in the FBI. Why well, have ambition? You know, I have this sort of American- Wide-eyed and, yeah. And then it turns out that the thing that he's actually interested in is deviance. And he's interested in creating a new language for why these inexplicable things happen. And 
then the greed comes back and then the ambition mm-hmm. comes back and his desire to be co- like he's covetous of credit for all the things that people are starting to say, oh yeah, I guess you're kind of right about that. He's like, no, but like we have to do it my way. We have to understand these guys my way. I'm weirdly protective of these awful, awful people because I want them to be understood through but my lens. And it's, it's all about this idea of like how do how you use language to describe something and how you talk about something the show's about is talking, what defines yeah. its reality. Let's also just say pure servicey podcasting right now. This show, if you've resisted watching Mindhunter on Netflix, it is not what you think it is. Almost guaranteed. It is not what you think it is. It is not a, it is not a murder mystery. It, it is not mystery. a gory show. It is not a murder mystery. Yeah. It is deeply subversive in what it is. It is a terrific watch. It is entertaining. Well, how would you even describe it? Like a workplace drama? I mean, it's kind almost, of. it's almost but that. Here's the other thing about it. I am so excited for a second season. And generally too, yeah. I have sort of lost oh, yeah. that that muscle where I'm like, I need it now. I want the next right. thing. Or even I, I, I just, the season ends, let's let people figure it out. And maybe I'll be excited again. And I'll start over. This one left me at a point where I actually have a sense of where it could go, what it could be. And that's, that is thrilling. So incredible show. Next up, we have to include one insane story of the week. So last week's roundup, we had a story on how a guy avoided his boss for two full years from House of Carbs. And this week, we have Juliet Littman and Amanda Dobbins talking about George Clooney's absolutely ludicrous gift giving in this clip from Jam Session. The Rat published a story today that is um, a recounting of Randy Germer, one of the co-owners of Casamigos with George Clooney and the husband of Cindy Crawford. Um, telling a story on MSNBC about a time in 2013 when George Clooney gave his 14 best friends each a duffel bag filled with $1 million in $20 bills and paid their taxes for that year. Okay. I I honestly just have to read. We have to read this. Okay. I'll read some details. I just want to highlight right now in advance. I know you're all thinking this was 2013. This was way before the sale of Casamigos for for $1 billion. Yes. Here's what George, this is what happened per Randy Gerber. So there's a group of guys we call the boys. So they certainly have a group text that they've renamed the boys. George had called me and the boys and said, Hey, Mark, September 27th, September 27th, 2013 on your calendar. Everyone's going to come to my house for dinner. George begins to say, listen, I want you guys to know how much you've meant to me and how much you mean to me in my life. I came to LA. I slept on your couch. I'm so fortunate in my life to have all of you. And I couldn't be where I am today without all of you. So it was really important to me that while we're still all here together, that I give back. So I give back to his friends, not the community or charity. So I want you all to open your suitcases. And so this is where we should note that there are black designer luggage bags at each setting on the table, which is a fancy way of saying there are fucking duffel bags yes. this is at like, every setting at the table. Continue. It's a deleted scene from the film Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. We open it up and it's a million dollars in $20 bills. Every one of us, 14 of us got a million dollars. Every single one of us. We're in shock. Like, what is this? And he goes, I know we've all been through some hard times. Some of you are still going through it. You don't have to worry about your kids. You don't have to worry about, you know, school. You don't have to worry about paying your mortgage. And then Gerber said that some of Clooney's boys were working uh, paycheck to paycheck at the time. The restaurateur, he said he initially tried to turn down the gift, but he said if you didn't take it, then nobody gets it. So Gerber then accepted it. And uh, that's just, and then he says, this is who George is. That was September 27th, 2013. And then now, September 27, 2014, he marries them all. Now that's good karma right there. So, man, is it good to be George Clooney? So, $14 million in cash. Yes. Means that he has how much money 
on hand. Um, plus everyone's taxes. Like, right. Okay. So I'm going to go like 20 million. I on just cash. He doesn't need like 20, like, I don't know. 20 million in cash. It's in not cash. like in property. Liquid, yeah. It's not investments. He's 20 million liquid that he is able to give away to people. I'm squirming in my seat. That makes me so confused and uncomfortable. Here's a question. Do you think they actually pay taxes or do you think he just said that because he was on MSNBC? I don't know. I think he probably paid the taxes. Okay. So that they didn't get in trouble. I just, how much money does George Clooney have in 2013? I'm looking at the IMDb page. Well, I think there were six years from the Oceans trilogy. Okay. And then he did Leatherheads and Ides of March. Here's the thing about celebrities like George Clooney. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say, Doug Doug Ross is my favorite fictional man like ever. So I just love George Clooney so much. Okay. As a result of that, maybe even if not warranted. The thing about George Clooney is that he is so charming. Again, I'm just like squirming in my seat is that mm-hmm. he has these incredible endorsements like that Nespresso money is probably worth a lot. And like, who knows what else he's doing overseas to get that cash? Yeah, it's a great point. rich people just find ways to make money. And when you're like handsome and suave as he is, like it just comes to you. It's an unfair world, but it's true. That's a great point. I'd still that's an astonishing amount astonishing. of cash on hand to be able to give away to your friends. Completely. In a black duffel bag, which just also suggests. I mean, that's the shadiest way to present it. I mean, it's hilarious, but uh, it's uh, it's unbelievable. It's also like then we got to add in the cost of the duffel bags. I'm sure they were really nice. It's a few like that's ma- like a many thousand at this point. I'm sure they were donated. Hey, I'm giving my friends a million dollars. Would you like to sponsor this? Sure, George, we'd love to. It is wild. And then think about all the other gifts he's probably getting for people that we don't even know about. So if anyone out there is feeling that generous this Christmas season and, you know, wants to do the same for me, please send them here to our ring office in L.A. In the meantime, we have exciting news from Pizza Hut, which is honestly a sentence I never thought I would say. In this clip from House of Carbs, Joe House and Juliet Littman discuss the pizza chain's decision to start bringing alcohol to your doorstep. Last week... Uh, Pizza Hut announced that it will start testing beer and wine delivery in certain cities. This story comes from us, comes to us from CNN Money, money money.cnn.com. And the story says uh, the service will debut in Phoenix, Arizona, with six packs of um, all Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch beers, including Budweiser, Bud Light, and Shock Top and Kilt Lifter, which I'd never heard of. But that is because it's an Arizona-based craft brewer for Peaks. All options will cost a flat $10.99, and then wine delivery will, will roll out in January. Those details are still up in the air. Um, but yeah, you can have this coming to you in your home. Uh, the move is Pizza Hut's latest attempt to shore up sales. Their uh, Yum brand, which is the company that owns them, has been on a tear with shares up 32% this year, but Pizza Hut, Hut hasn't been performing as well as the siblings, t- Taco Bell and KFC, and so they are trying this out. Um. So I have a question for you. Okay. When is the last time you ordered Pizza Hut? Um, I don't think I've ever ordered Pizza Hut. However. Oh, wow. However, I am a huge fan of the stuffed crust pizza and I've been to Pizza Hut to have it. Oh, so where is there a physical brick and mortar Pizza Hut oh, still? I mean, it's been, it's been it's been years. I don't know. This oh, is like, okay. like on the East Coast, but I do yeah. lo- I do love stuffed crust pizza. So do I. And I thought you were about to tell me that there is a Pizza Hut brick and mortar there in the greater L.A. area that you and I could go sample. We already have Chili's on the list. Yeah, we got to go to Chili's. We, we, 
We could do Chili's and Pizza Hut in in one afternoon. That would be pretty fine eating. Um, um there's one really close to to where I am currently. There's a one brick and mortar. Yes. There's, oh my god! It's like in Koreatown on Santa Monica Boulevard. It's not really in Koreatown. It's like north. Of, it's like in the Virgil Village area. So you, in my it's close to in where my I live. youth, yeah. So in in my youth, the Pizza Hut um, pizza bar, like the all you can eat pizza bar, where they just put the pizzas under lamps, um, and you could walk up. You know, you paid your price. You you, you paid the the entry fee. That's the way I think of it. And uh, walked up with the plate, and then you could eat as much pizza and salad as you as you wanted. That was a really crucial part of my high school and a little <laughs> bit of college, uh, and maybe it even bled over into a little bit of law school. I really enjoyed that aspect of Pizza Hut. Um, when I you know, got to sort of the ordering pizza to my home stage of of. Uh, Lifestyle Pizza Hut was not really a big, didn't never really featured prominently in that. Um, my my rank of ordering, my priority of ordering uh, pizza delivery, but this six pack of of beer thing is taking it to a whole nother level. Yeah, like it's kind of brilliant. Um, and it, and I'm shocked that it's 2017, it's December 2017, and we're reading about this now as a as a kind of innovation. Next up, Cousin Sal and Bill Simmons talk to Curb Your Enthusiasm's Bob Einstein, better known as Super Dave Osborne. In this clip from Against All Odds, he discusses some of his favorite comedians and performers. Who's the greatest comedian, Super Dave? If you had an hour left to live and you could watch only clips of one comedian on YouTube, who is it? Well, I'm going to tell you who I loved. Yeah. I did 18 hours of his show. Well, I loved Pryor, but I loved... Red Fox. Oh, you loved him, yeah. Red Fox. Revered. Loved him. Now, if you didn't know him, you were you were kind of removed from him. You didn't know how fucking brilliant he was. He was the funniest, huh? Joe Lewis on. You yeah. know what that's like? That's Babe Ruth. Right. And, and Joe was fairly old at the time. So I said to Joe, what you're going to do in the middle of Red's monologue, you're going to punch him like you're going to punch him in the jaw. Mm-hmm. So in the middle of Red's monologue, he punches him, but he does. And Red goes down. And in, in a velvet suit, he comes up with a knife. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did he really? He came up with a knife for Joe Lewis. <laughs> that would have been on he YouTube. Was the yeah. I loved him. Uh, that was, was, I'm always fascinated by that 70s comedy scene when you had all these amazing... Talents oh, that were just writing. Here's yeah. The great, and then let me tell you this story. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I started with Glenn Campbell and then went right to the Smothers Brothers. And that had I mean, everybody. Ph- yeah. Phenomenal. Let me tell you this story. I'm, uh, I had done six years with Bizarre. John Biner was the star of that show. And it was the first show in the history of cable. And then we got six years of Super Dave. And the first show of Super Dave, I said to my partner, we got to have a blockbuster. We've got to have a guest that just knocks their socks off. And my favorite human being of all time, and still is, was Ray Charles. Hmm. There was no human being that was a better talent. I mean, musician-wise, he could do anything and singing anything. Was he he better than Lin-Manuel Miranda? Uh, No. No, okay. Not as good as him, (laughs) but... (laughs) 
Almost. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. If you bring that name up again, I'm going to walk through a window. Okay? All right. Bye. <laughs> okay. So I call him up. I feel like such an asshole. Yeah. But I call him up, and his manager answers. You know, I said, hi, my name is Bob Einstein. I, I play a character called Super Dave. And the manager said, I don't know who you are. So now I think he's going to say, get off the phone because I want to talk to uh, the time or something. So I said, I'm going to ask you something, and I don't even know how to say it. But we do a show in Canada called Super Dave. And I would do anything in the world to get Ray up here to do my first show. We don't have a lot of money, but he is a human being that I respect, love. He said, I'll call you back tomorrow. He calls me back. Listen to this, please. <laughs> he calls me back and he said, Ray will do the show on one condition. Mm -hmm. I said, what? You put him in a stunt. Wow. Mm. Did you hear me? Yes, yeah. You put him in a stunt. <laughs> That's so beyond wow. Okay. That's so beyond wow. <laughs> so what we did is we opened the show. Mike Walden was my announcer. He's waiting for me. All of a sudden, the car comes in on two wheels. It spins around 16 times, goes up a ramp, through a giant billboard of me, crashes down. I go out the passenger window. Mike Walden said, Super Dave, that's the greatest opening star. I said, I'm hurt, Mike. Of course you are, but that was, I said, let's go to commercial. Well, don't you? I said, go to commercial. So they do. I said, oh, my God, am I hurt. What a stunt. I said, it wasn't a stunt. And I opened the driver's side and Ray gets out. He said, I'm sorry. I wasn't used to driving a stick shift. <laughs> I said, I should have known that when we went through McDonald's 37 times. <laughs> and we walked in and he did, what did I say? He did every one of my first shows for five, six years. He did my movie, Ray Charles. Wow. That's great. Is that something? That's terrific. It really is. This next clip is from one of my favorite podcasts, The Rewatchables. 2007 is regarded as one of the best years in recent film memory, and Sean Fennessy, Chris Ryan, and Andy Greenwald commemorate that by taking another look at the film Zodiac and share their most rewatchable scene. This is a sort of complicated film to celebrate any one scene over the other, so I tried to mix it up with a series of more light scenes and then obviously the darker ones. Now, uh, the cold open the first murder is considered one of the crowning achievements in Fincher's career, so I had to include that. And I also included the credit sequence, which sort of sets up the world we're living in with incredible economy and panache. And might be the most, you know, for a movie that's so, for a director who's so stylish and for a movie that's so visually dense, this is one of the only, like, quote-unquote set pieces Outside of the murders, it's the trolley of mail that's bringing the first Zodiac letter to the publisher and editor mm -hmm. of the Chronicle. The Grace Smith Avery bar scene with the Aqua Velva, which is their sort of coming together. Um, the Napa murder. Mm -hmm. The this is the Zodiac speaking with Melvin. The entire sequence, just the, the talk show, mm -hmm. and I am not the Zodiac. The the interrogation scene. Yeah, my I have. One vote and one honorable mention. Sure. I think the honorable mention is the scene Andy just uh, identified, which is at the very end of the movie, which is Graysmith recreating Arthur Lee Allen and uh, I believe Jacqueline is her name, the first the first victim. And when he says door to door 
It's 50 yards. Yep. I've walked it. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door. That is less than 50 yards. There's like a we solved it moment yeah. feeling. It's the only real like mm-hmm. we've solved it moment in the movie, except for the the, the questioning of Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah. Where he they the three detectives go and visit him in, in his office or like, I'm not even totally sure where he it's works. It's at the factory. It's, it's, it's the, the break factory. room in the factory. Yeah. Okay. And it's just this long protracted. We got him, you know, where he yeah. keeps saying things and you keep wondering why he's saying them and it is that that thing we've come to understand and is identified in this movie is serial killers want to be caught yeah. and so they say things like those knives i had in my trunk were bloody because i killed a chicken right and you're like what what just happened here? <laughs> the knives i had in my car with the blood on them that blood came from a chicken that i killed for dinner what i had knives in my car that weekend maybe bill saw them and called the other officer on me well, we'll be checking in on that. And all the uh, unspoken communication else. between them when they see the watch and they look at the watch. That scene is just spectacular. I think that would probably be up at the top of my list. I, I, I think that you mentioned the Napa murder, like Barry Essa scene. Mm-hmm. That is the least rewatchable and maybe the best scene in the film. Yeah. Um, it is so expertly done and so horrifying in such a slow burning way. And then it might be one of the most unsettling murder scenes I've ever yes. seen. Yeah. When he slips behind the tree before you really see yeah. him approaching there's it's incredibly unnerving. It, well, that, that gets the, I still think this, you know, this for me, the scariest thing ever in movies is the shining when walking up the stairs and the guy in the bear suit. And there's just like the person that is just incongruous and it's there and you so you're so in with those characters and there's the sense of we are by a lake in the middle of a tourist area on a beautiful sunny day of course there are other people here of course we're safe it's and always, there is it, no safety and the movie then the movie is also a protracted tease of our expectations there's very little violence except when oh my god there's such awful violence yeah and it hits harder so i think that's not rewatchable but is worth mentioning i'm surprised you didn't have the scene um when Graysmith goes to the the uh, the, cam- the um, projectionist's house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the end, which I, I, again I don't I have a hard time watching it, let alone rewatching it. But that scene to me is so exceptional because it's um, we almost think the movie is going to let us go, like we think we're out of that part of the movie, and then it's the most f- it's the scariest probably moment in the entire film. It's the most horror movie element of yeah. the film. You know the other the the, the murders are are serial killer moments, mm-hmm. and this movie in part because of the movies that they're talking mm-hmm. about and the sort of like the darkened home and down into the basement and that feeling is is um it's almost like a Wes Craven movie or something. You know the way that you don't and when he pulls the 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 chain to turn yeah. the light off yeah. before Graysmith scurries out, it's pure like if a zombie killed him in that moment, I wouldn't be shocked. Also, he goes home and his family's gone. His right. family is gone. Right. And that's when the, you know, you don't know if the first part was in his mind, but this is the reality of what he's done. In our last clip of the week, we have a Star Wars themed podcast on Binge Mode Weekly. In honor of Star Wars The Last Jedi, which premiered on Friday, Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion share their appreciation for the droids and their impact on the franchise. And don't worry, there aren't any spoilers. I love BB-8. BB-8 is great, man. Here's one of my, like, Seven favorite moments just ever. Sure. A little thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's really great. Fire with the little, you need, you need a light, and it seems giving us thumbs up. All the droids in the story are really fascinating the way they interact, not only with yeah. humans, but with each other, their commitments to their tasks. But they're not actually 
these flat, lifeless beings. They have such vibrant personalities. And it's a particularly impressive achievement with droids like R2-D2 or BB-8 because they can't speak. You know, C-3PO, you do get to the point where you're like, can you just like shut shut the fuck up for a minute? Also, like, he's mean. He's He's, he's he's as much of a bully as anyone. It's hard to feel too bad for the droids getting bullied when he's as much of a bully as anyone. But... R2 and BB-8, they can convey so much yes. about their thoughts and their feelings by sounds. They remind me sure. so much of Wally. Like Wally and BB-8 have the same pitches and the same tones. And when BB thinks that Poe is dead, Aww. the way that his head slides That's and great. sinks, it's just like heartbreaking. That's and then great. his joy when he sees him again. Yeah. There's more loyalty there than there is among many of the human characters. And it's just really heartening and sort of comforting to think about what if you were in this world? What if you were in this galaxy? And what if you had either the opportunity or the burden, depending on your perspective, to try to save people and to try to make a difference? And the one that you could count on was this little rolling ball of bliss right next to you. Glad you mentioned C-3PO's voice because that's like one of the signifiers that Lucas uses like over time is this class division. You know, the upper class kind of British-y accents, those are often the bad guys. So it's an interesting choice to use that with C-3PO. Great. Yeah. Also, Zach Cram, who assists us with research and is just a generally great guy, wanted us to give a shout out to K2SO. K2SO. The smart ass from Rogue One. I liked him. I liked him. Okay, that is it for this week. You can find the full-length versions of all these podcasts and subscribe at theringer.com slash podcasts.